Activist theology is built on the power of story, and we believe story can change the world. We also know that being in community with one another on this journey will help to build a movement committed to collective liberation and a more loving world. We have a commitment to the ethics and politics of Encajunto, or togetherness, and we are together in this work with you. Hi, folks. This is Dr. Robin. Hi, y'all. This is Reverend Anna Galladay, and we are your hosts for the Activist Theology Podcast. It's time for us to get our hands dirty. We're ready. Are you? Pastor, here we are again. Dr. Robin, how are you? So I never thought that I would see you back in my office because I thought I was trapped in the Central Valley of California. <laughs> but look at you. You're home. Yes. You're home in Nashville. Things are are starting to you're kind of starting to sink back into a normalcy and and the rhythm of being back in your space. I'm yes. glad I'm glad of that for you. Yes. It's good to be back and I'm glad to be easing back into the scene here as they as the kids say <laughs> the scene, <laughs> the Nashville scene, yeah. the, as you live in the suburbs. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's all yeah. right. It's but it's, it's good. good. It's good and quiet here. I'm glad that I'm not listening to, you know, I used to live right next door to a hospital. So I'm glad that I'm not listening to um, um, sirens all the time. Though there is a police station and fire station just down the road, so I still get the siren, but I don't get the pedal taverns anymore, which I'm very glad glad for. No, so I no, I don't no hear, drunken I don't, bachelorette parties. So I, I'm not, I'm not hearing Garth Brooks, Shania Twain, Bon Jovi. I'm, I'm not hearing that. Uh, you know, it was on a, it was on a, um, it was on a schedule. Like noon on Mondays was Shania Twain. Thursdays at three was Bon Jovi living on a prayer. I mean, at least you always knew to set your calendar to it. Right, right. I mean, there. Right. so in full disclosure, I have never desired to hear Shania Twain regularly, but there may have been times in my youth and even now in my 40s that I love the sound of John Bon Jovi and, and his band. So, you know, I, I probably there would there may be days that I would embrace that. Maybe. Yeah, I can get down on Bon Jovi. Um, I, I feel like I grew up with him. Same, same. I'm, I'm also in my mid forties. Yeah, he was a he was a bit of a he was a looker, as as the kids would say. Really, really. <laughs> well, yeah, for my for my generation, yes. And um, I mean, I do. I still remember uh, friends of mine that would um, uh, just completely um sexualize uh men like him and you know have posters on their walls right right all the things that's that's what that's what they did we that's what i did but it wasn't john bon jovi yeah um so anyway we digress yes how are you i'm i'm well i'm well i actually am I had I had some some big scheduling things that have been wrapping up for me over the last few weeks and I am feeling just the capacity to take some big deep breaths and I spent a couple of hours this weekend like cleaning out some you know rooms and you know I mean you know we we moved, we moved into this house about 8 months ago and like it's just now at the point where 
I feel like I have to do like a little bit of a shifting around and, you know, things have settled, things are where they are. And so I'm doing a little purging, I'm doing a little cleaning up, but it's nice to feel like I have the spaciousness with which to do that, which I have not felt. Because the last thing we need to do is have an episode on how you're a hoarder. Yeah, definitely not. But I also, um, I, I like things to be, I just like things to be organized. Yeah. I don't necessarily need it to be put away, but I need to know where everything is. Yeah. And I, I need, you. you know, like I want to know what's in the piles. Yeah. Yeah. And and yeah. I, so I want organized piles, not necessarily disappeared yes. piles. I want organized right. piles. Right. So. I hear you. But yeah, everything's good with me otherwise. And um, we find ourselves um, a week into Pride Month. Yep. And we're going to um, have a robust conversation today with um, one of the um, one of your uh, kin in the work, someone that um, you know well that um, will kind of help us navigate this conversation uh, from a spirituality standpoint, from um, an ethics standpoint. And we're really excited that um, Sarah Rosenau is going to be on the podcast with us today. How do you know Sarah? I met Sarah back in the day when I was part of the Human Rights Campaign uh, Summer Institute that uh, Dr. Sharon Groves gave mm-hmm. birth to. And Sarah, Nikki, and I were a threesome. Lord. Now, I didn't know that. Okay. Now, All right. Like my, 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 my whole mindset just shifted. <laughs> Let me clarify what I mean when I say threesome. I do not mean it in a sexual sense. Oh, no, no, no. I didn't take it that way. I didn't take okay. it that way at all. Okay. I just took it in a, like, making good trouble way. Yes, which, thank you. Which thank you. still, like, completely reframed what this conversation is about to be, and I'm even more yeah. excited about it now. <laughs> yeah, so we had we had a really great um, opportunity to work together, collaborate together, and... Um, so I've known Sarah for a long time, and we had the chance to collaborate together. Nikki, Sarah, and I, uh, we also had a chance to, uh, we were invited back to the Summer Institute to give a talk to um, another class that, that was in. And, uh, you know, we were also in uh, doctoral programs at the same time, but at three different institutions. And... We are so proud that Sarah is now Dr. Sarah Rosenau, Reverend, Dr. Reverend, I should say, Dr. Reverend Sarah Rosenau, and a graduate of Drew Theological School, Drew University, and um, just a really brilliant, brilliant mind, also strategic thinker, and, you know, like throws down in the activist space. And so, you know, just, you know, Sarah is doing their own version of activist theology up in the Pacific Northwest. We should probably go there and check it out at some point and do a live podcast there. Always Um, up for a road trip. Yeah. uh, But super thrilled to have Sarah on today to talk about pride and resistance. And also what is it like, how do we do pride as clergy people? Uh, How do we do pride in non-normative ways? So I'm like super excited to get in to that conversation, but that that's how I know Sarah and Sarah probably can spill some tea about me and has many stories about me because they've known me for a long time. Um, So. Excellent. 
Reverend Dr. Sarah Rosenau, we're really happy to welcome you to the Activist Theology Podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. It's great to be with you. Why don't you take a moment and just kind of expand on uh, Robin's introduction of you, um, let folks know kind of what kind of work you're doing out in the Pacific Northwest and how you come at this conversation and um, why, why, uh, why we need to be listening to, to folks like, like you on a more regular basis. Thank you so much. Um, and thanks for holding space for these important conversations. Um, I'm a, in the Pacific Northwest in Portland, Oregon, where I also grew up in this region. So this is my local land, um, home, home, home mountains, home, uh, home trees. Um, and yeah, it's great that Robin referenced our PhD work, um, our, our, our good trouble that we were getting into in the, uh, the academic space, which we did. Um, I did my PhD in theology and um, explored how queer theory could um, uh, speak to how we form ourselves as community, particularly as community uh, uh, related to church. So I did a queer ecclesiology and um, and then moved back to Portland with my family, my kiddos, my dog, who you just heard barking, and um, have been pastoring a small United Church of Christ church in Portland, Oregon, and then spend about three quarters time I do that, and then I spend my other time um, working on new and emerging projects. I do facilitation uh, in the really connected to Adrienne Marie Brown's work um, in Emergent Strategy. I do facilitation based on the idea and the practice that we as human people are living systems. And so um, we want to like curate conversation based on good chaos uh, and um, diversity and multiplicity in our individual uh, understandings of ourselves and in our collective ways of being. And um, yeah, and then I've just been involved in activist work here on the ground in Portland in various settings, most recently, Black Lives Matter um, in Portland, which was really ground zero for a lot of um, of the racial uh, justice uprisings this summer, this last summer, related to George Floyd's murder. So I'll stop there. But thank you for being with me. And I'm excited to talk about pride. I was thinking about it. And this is my 21st year um, being out. Um, it's, you know, a windy road. But uh, yeah, Dyke March, Portland, Oregon, 2000. So um, can you can you tell us how long you how long have you been out of your PhD program? Um, you know, I took a longer path in terms of, um, writing my, my dissertation. Right. So I, right. I, I graduated in 2016, I think. Okay. So, um, you've been out about the same amount of time as I have, cause I, I defended in 2015, but then had revisions to make and graduated in 2016. So we've been out the, about the same amount of time we, we broke free uh, from yeah. the institution. 
And I, I feel really curious about, um, what have you, what have you found useful from the Academy that you have taken with you or brought with you? Like what's in your knapsack from, from the Academy? Mm. Yeah, that's helpful. And I might then add to that question, what did you specifically leave behind? Yeah, that was my next question. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, I I mean, I approached my academic work. Um, I used to say while I was in the middle of it that I approached it as a, as a monastic. So um, just kind of drawing on the tradition of um, monastic peoples, especially women, uh, female-bodied, um, identified people, you know, in the Middle Ages, who that was like their path to not get married and have a lot of children. Um, and, and to, you know, be disruptive in um, both like a, in terms of thinking, but also in terms of practice related to in institutions. So, um, so I really relished that time and I loved that time, that sort of like time to sink into thoughts and ideas and the collaborative time and being di in dialogue with really incredible thinkers, both um, through books and then also through colleagues. Um, and I think I've taken that spirit of collaboration and the, um, and also just the importance of the multiplicity of, ide of ideas and the intersection of ideas and that, uh, that um, our um, solutions to things are like our, 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 our social worlds are really complex and it's uh, helpful to think of, of them on many different layers. And then also um, I take from it um, the, a lot of imagination in my theology department, there was just a lot of encouragement to um, be creative and to imagine the world that we want to live in. I always think of theology as an imaginative practice in which we, um, you know, wonder who we are and also who we could be. So, and, and, and draw stories from who we have been through. Mm -hmm. So for me, um, theology is very much storytelling. I think that what I left behind is um, just the, um, the oppression of the competitive space um, and the idea that it's most, it's really important to be unique. Um, I'm just not that thrilled with that idea. I think of yeah. course, you know, we all have our like individual quirkiness and our like, we're so beloved in our uniqueness, but the, the idea that I have to have like these original thoughts, um, and, and sort of push my way forward and through, um, just left a bad taste in my mouth. And, um, and then also just the sluggishness of institutions in general, you know, um, the academy is really no different than like the church in the sense right. that it wants to preserve itself at the expense of mm -hmm. people and yeah. and it um it's resistant to really creative uh emergence mm -hmm. and so i mean i i have done a similar type of purging 
And I mean, it's one reason why I left my faculty post in Berkeley and moved home to the South. I was just tired of the bullshit. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I'm, I'm curious, you know, we're in Pride Month and, you know, we're, we're seeing all the companies celebrate quote unquote diversity, which is just a code word for tolerance. Um, and I'm, I'm really curious how, how do we create communities that are grounded in practices of resistance that in, in this imaginative resistance, because when we look at the history of pride, we, we see as Foucault would call them heterotopias, these non-hegemonic bodies. And, and yet what we see now are hegemonic bodies doing quote unquote pride. Mm-hmm. And it seems very counter to the very tradition of pride. And so I just feel really curious about your own work around creating community and emergence and adapting and whatnot. How do we do pride in 2021 while we are still living in a pandemic and honor the history that has come before us? How do we, how do we draw from it and how do we imagine where we want to go? I love that. I mean, I have been thinking about that because for some reason, maybe because of the pandemic this year, I feel more of an urge to be with all the non-normatives. Um, that's what I kind of like to talk about related to pride is, um, you know, all the different non-normatives. And, um, you know, uh, the LGBTIQA community is a moving target, right? I mean, everyone's making, always making fun of us for adding letters and all of these things. But I think it's beautiful in the sense that it's just, um, it's itself like evolving and emerging. Uh, my daughter is 11 and this year she hand drew a bunch of uh, flags and there was a bunch of flags that I didn't even know what they were. I had to look them up because she's, you know, right. she's hip to it. She's like yeah. oh, everyone, all the flags. Yeah. And she um, posted them all over our, um, our co-housing community that we live in. And, uh, uh, put uh, uh, an activist sign on the stop sign that said stop being homophobic. It's not that nice. hard. It was really great to see that. So I was like kind of celebrating pride with her. But I think maybe because we've been um, away from each other, you know, there's this feeling like we want to be together and celebrate, you know, the multiplicity of who we are. Um, I also had a lot of frustration during the pandemic with public health um, uh, assumptions about about the home and about family and about like who you would be sheltering in place with or locking down with. You know, I never heard anyone say like, please form a, um, you know, a connected group with your polycule or with your chosen family. You know, there was just a lot of assumptions that we all live in the suburbs in like heteronormative, um, right. like closed systems in which we have everything that we need in our huge suburban house. And, um, you know, and that's true for other people too, beyond, beyond the queer community, you know, uh, people with, uh, with, um, 
disabilities and mental health concerns and, and different ways in which people found that really difficult. But I was just kept being mad about um, the way in which we yeah. were asked to lock down in a really like with a lot of heteronormative assumptions. So that sort of like um, space that you're talking about, the kind of heteronormative space is not only like actual spaces, but it's also like the sort of ideas that our government has of who we are and, and, right. and who we're with um, and how we make a life, you know, a collective life together. So um, I might've gotten off track there a little bit, just talking, starting with the pandemic, but I think the question of how do we um, stay in resistance, you know, keep connected to the um, reality that pride was a riot, that it was an anti-police riot. <laughs> like it was, it was a anti-racist um, uh, resistance of police brutality by people of color. And, you know, that is really lost on a lot of people. There's been really interesting and strange discussion um, in the social media space about, about how kink is not welcome at Pride. And like, it just don't scroll. Don't scroll in those conversations because, you know, you'll get um, being queer is not about sexuality and strange ideas like that. Right. So, right. Um, you know, like the, the, the need not only for corporate America to, to sort of wash over the real resistance of what pride is, but even the miseducation of our own people um, and the acceptance of a kind of like, heteronormative homosexuality or like, right. you know? Yeah. Um, and so for me, I'm always like to center on practice. Um, you know, when I was growing up in a kind of a more conservative context, there was a lot of, um, you know, the, the kind of talk about the practicing homosexual and it's like, yeah, definitely, you know, practice makes perfect. Let's practice more. Um, you, you know, there's something to, identity politics but i think for me identity politics is sort of like it's self-disrupted by us getting out in the world and and being who we are like enacting who we are on a daily basis and learning more about who we are through the collective interactions that we have with others and for me being out, um, being queer, and my identity has shifted over time, you know, bisexual, uh, I was in, uh, um, I just used different labels, and now mostly just use queer as a kind of blanket statement. But, um, but for me, um, like, I've, I've been on a learning journey as a queer person in and through other queer people. And that's been so transformative to me. And, um, I think of the queer community not as a monolithic space, but as like a very um, a space in which we get to do all the work that we're supposed to be doing otherwise, you know, mm -hmm. um, related to um, like I've learned a lot about my whiteness through the queer community. I've learned a lot about being an anti-racist through the queer community. I've learned a lot about my cis identity through the queer community. Um, I've learned a lot about um, the privilege of um, having papers in this country and having mm -hmm. a passport, like through my uh, queer friends who haven't had that um, just gifted to them. 
at birth. So yeah, I'll stop there. But I think um, for me, it's like just always being in a learning journey and always being in a kind of like, yeah, it's a moving target. Like, yeah, you can't pin us down. We're out here and you don't um, have to understand it all, but you can learn along. You know, we're learning, you can learn along with. And so I love that this is, I love that we started with um, queerness as kind of our base point. Um, as, as our listeners know, you know, Dr. Robin is a theologian. Um, I am a pastor in the United Methodist faith. Um, Sarah, you are a pastor in the UCC, the United Church of Christ space. Um, we, uh, two of us bring, um, you know, uh, what I would assume to be a fairly confident, uh, you know, relationality with, um, Jesus and, and, and our, you know, the, all of the folds and the integration that comes with that. And, um, Robin has, you know, in many instances kind of named, um, how, Theology is complex and there are many pathways and many entry points in a very similar way to as there are with queerness and with um, Mm -hmm. our, our, our identities and our sexualities. And so Mm -hmm. I wonder if we can fold into this, this conversation layer into this conversation, um, the addition of our, our faith, our um, spiritual ethics, um, our role as people who guide others in their faith, and and how that then interacts with our understanding of queerness, but also our understanding of pride as mm. um, an institution um, in both its beauty and its um, problematic nature. Um, how would you how would you expand on what you know and what you have come to learn about yourself as a queer woman now also naming in and folding in your role as a pastor and the way that spirituality informs and influences that that ethic yeah i love that um related to what I was saying about um, queerness being a practice for me, you know, I think of my faith um, or my spiritual uh, inner life as something similar um, that needs to be practiced. And I was really ended up to be um, kind of grateful for the time that I spent outside of the church in my twenties in a, in a, in a, in a sort of angry, um, <laughs> uh, I mean, I was angry, but I was also um, just at the institution, especially at its, its, its homophobia. But um, but I was also um, really longing for the divine in some way. And I found um, lots of other places to practice that longing in, 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 in other uh, religious institutions, including Buddhist, Buddhist some Buddhist... Um, communities and the yoga community. Um, And in some ways, when I came back to Christianity, I came back to Christianity and really deepened my own uh, queerness at the same time. I sort of came out twice. And the second time that I came out, 
I went back to church. And, um, for me, the originally that was very much about, um, you, uh, you know, monolithic homophobic theology. You don't get to say what Christianity is. I'm going to just jump right in here and start talking about it. Um, as well. And I'm going to beat you at your own game, you know? So that was like a lot of some of why I did a PhD, right? It's like, I'm going to get you. But, um, uh, I, I think that, um, a story I'd want to tell about like where I am with that now, um, is, uh, I got up really early this fall, one morning this fall, I was got up at like five o'clock to go down to a prayer, like a, a morning prayer, um, circle, um, at the invitation of the black lives matter activists who were holding down a space. Um, it was kind of like a, um, autonomous zone and there had been some Intel that the, the Portland police might invade that space in the morning. And so they asked the Portland interfaith clergy resistance of which I am a member to come and offer this prayer time in order to disrupt that um, uh, raid. And so I was in a circle with um, a couple of different interfaith clergy from, you know, witches and rabbis and Christian pastors, and then a bunch of activists who um, I didn't know how they identified spiritually. But one of the things I said to them when it was my turn to say something I didn't necessarily do a prayer per se, <laughs> excuse me. I, um, I, uh, asked them to like name what they longed for, um, like to imagine the world that they were fighting for. And then I just told them, um, that our spiritual, like inner life and our spirituality has very much been stolen from us by the institutions that collude with empire including the Christian church. And I said, you're not going to make it, you know, you're not going to make it in this revolution unless you get grounded in some spirit. And that can be from like a lot of different places. Like I keep saying now the Pantheon is really big. (laughs) There's a lot of gods and goddesses hanging out and we have our ancestors and we have our sacred stories from these traditions. And so I'm much more interested now in kind of, curating a pretty multiplicity, multi, I don't know, multiplicitous space, religious space as a Christian pastor, like still rooted in my stories and the stories that I come from, but really trying to open that up and give it some air. Um, even within the context of like, uh, the church that I serve. Um, I just think that's where we're at. That's where we're going. Yeah. I love that. You know, we are, um, we are, I, so I reside in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and our local um, pride organization has had some turnover in leadership and um, is now led by a group who um, is, you know, a bunch of well-intended, white, queer humans um, who almost exclusively identify as um, gay or lesbian. 
or bisexual. And as the announcements started to trickle out over the last few weeks about events and things that were going to be going on over the next um, few months, we actually celebrate Pride here in Chattanooga in October um, in conjunction with Atlanta's uh, Pride because we're in such close proximity. But we are also doing some stuff in June as well. There was a noticeable um, absence of language and consistency around anyone who um, was um, not uh, queer normative, not gay, lesbian, bisexual. It's kind of like you've got two flags and those are the flags that um, this organization chose to kind of focus on. And, and, Rightfully so. Um, our pushback, our language, our, um, our, you know, desire to really kind of shine a light on the ways that um, folks were missed and um, vanished and kind of excluded from conversations was really important. And I tell that story because as you're speaking into um, this, this interfaith space with others who are, um, coming from a Jewish, um, or a Wiccan or a Sikh or a Muslim tradition, Christians have the same capacity and the same tendency, um, to act as this group of, um, queer folk did in lifting higher the intention and lifting higher the visibility of those that are like them and, and really having an inability to see past um, and to see where they're misstepping. Um, And, and so I think it's, I, I, I affirm you in that. And I also name it because I think that there are so many similarities between uh, pride as an institution and religion as an institution <laughs> in the ways that we are exclusionary, um, supremacist, um, anti, um, anti-queer, um, overtly capitalist, you know, all of the things that kind of are, are, are that 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 muddy the waters of us really being able to be fully human and to envision the longing that we have for what's possible. Um, and so I appreciate your 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 take on that and that story and the way that you've that you framed that for us. Yeah, and I think we you know we focus I think in institutions you know they focus on like perpetuating themselves. And in a certain way, the way we do that is through like uh, a kind of ritual um, events, you know, here we are again at this time of year, we do this thing, um, which is fine. I think that that's really kind of um, like human, but uh, we we can become really narrow in the production of that, especially within capitalism. And um, we forget that, 
another human practice is to like circle up, you know, and just have conversation. Like what now? You know, that's one of the things I say in my um, facilitation work is that when you're in a circle with people, um, there's something like sort of deep in your bones that knows what to do. And it's easier to um, sort of settle in and have a meandering conversation and listen to each other. Um, I think of that actually as the podcast space has sort of in some ways like arisen for that, that purpose. But off, I don't, I think too often we just proceed with the events and we don't necessarily, um, like take the time to wonder like who, who's around and who's excluded and who needs voice. Um, where are you now? And coming out of the pandemic, that's just so much more important. Like we've all changed so significantly. And um, I think that we've had like, we've had like so much has been revealed, you know? And so the time for a kind of slow circle conversation in many spaces, um, liturgical, you know, church spaces, Christian spaces, the pride space, the time is now for that. But, um, but yeah, it's a loss. We've lost that, I think, as a culture for many different reasons, but the, the kind of, that kind of slow conversation and like recalibrating seeing what now, you know, um, part, a big reason why I moved home to the South. I'm initially from Northern Mexico, the Republic of Texas, but chose the middle of the country so I could get to places. But I initially moved home to the South for just that, for slow living, because I felt like it's either publish or perish in the academy. Mm-hmm. I was living in the Bay Area, and, and it was um, – there was no way to be. And I felt like the biggest act of resistance I could make was as a trans person to move to the South and to disrupt – what is here and also plant roots that has an imagination for a different, for another possible world. I, I look to the Zapatistas as my inspiration for that and, and to recover slow living, which, you know, people may make fun of me for this, but there is something to, um, letting your feet feel the grass between your toes. There's something to that. And, and we have, we are living such a life where we are just um, acquiescing to the bullshit, to, to the rhythm of the bullshit. We, we no longer have soundscapes. We no longer can hear birds. I mean, one of the reasons why we moved to where we, we live was so that I could be closer to the airport. But what we recovered in this area is, is um, working class people, melanin of all shades, soundscapes, trees. I can see more trees than I can see buildings. 
and there's something to that. You know, it's 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 not gentrified space where we are yet. Um, and there there is something to the rhythms that we need to recover. I mean, I am hugely influenced by monastic life and sort of the hours, um, whatnot. And we've lost so much of that because of surveillance capitalism, because of institutional life, because of supremacy culture. And and this month in, in Pride is a great reminder to recover some of those lost pieces. Absolutely. And it's such a ripe time for that because we have ha- been in these big shifts. I was thinking about that, Robin, related to um, the erotic. You know, I just every year read uh, The Power of the Erotic, Audre Lorde's essay, um, for its deep wisdom and call on our lives, you know. And I think that, like, for me, the last couple of years has really been about. Um, you know, you asked about like the dissertation work and, and, and pastoring and stuff like that. But the last couple of years has really been for me about like slowing down, um, reclaiming um, the erotic in its broadest sense, although also in this very specific sense too. But um, reclaiming it as like creative life force, you know, and that there, there's something to, for me about the, my understanding of the divine is really connected to the creative life force that births like creation, emergence, like our existence. Um, and like being in touch with those slower rhythms, I think is part of that. And, and what if pride was really about that? You know, what if it was about, um, you know, it started as a riot, but very much like uh, LGBTIQ, like identities are about a call on one's life to like live more authentically, um, to live in connection with with desire, even when it cuts against, um, uh, you know, that which um, is um, sort of monolithic in our lives. So I, I love that. Like I'm, I'm all about um, the, the, the erotic recovery of pride as a slow way of life. And I think that we're going to have to be in those, those conversations and those ways of living more and more. I was thinking about a quote uh, um, by um, Bayo Akomalafe, who I, I really love his work. And he talks about um, how, there's this like tyranny of like needing to be found or like named by a government. Well, like we fight for our rights and it's important, that's important, but there's also something lost when we're found and, you know, put in a box. And I feel like a lot of pride is like that. It's like, you're fat, you know, you're found, you got your rights. And so now we've got, um, you know, everyone, every, every, um, yeah. I mean, you've seen it, you know, there's just like, the displays, the pride displays that every, every, uh, uh, corporation. And it's just so, it's so even the FBI, even the FBI. And I'm like, wait, wait, the the FBI had a whole surveillance, like, um, program (laughs) 
uh, targeted targeting gay men. Yeah, I'm like, and they're crazy. still doing that. I yeah. mean, the entire like core of the resistance movement in Portland last summer that continues today is absolutely queer. It's all young queer people. I mean, there's others there too, but that's the core of it. So, you know, um, yeah, it's like, how do we, uh, it's kind of a both and, you know, it's being in those really radical resistance spaces. And for me, when I was out there as a clergy person, I was really feeling like just, I was like, I was the old one, you know, the kids are out there. I was just like, I'm here to support you. Do you need water? Do you need anointing? Um, can I get you to a medic, you know, and, um, and also just holding spiritual space because I think that's a ground that's like not, you know, always um, accessible to people, but, um, it's that. And it's also like, yeah, reclaiming our lives from, from, um, the boxes and the, and the sort of like flatlining oppression that capitalist wants us to be in. I call that the tyranny of the now, like, exactly. Like, like, um, resisting the tyranny of the now surviving the tyranny of the now, you know, that chronic sense of urgency that comes with capitalism and supremacy culture is all wrapped mm -hmm. up in, in this fighting for rights, you know? So I, I could go on for days. I love it. So we are going to see, um, whether we like it or not, um, spiritual communities, um, come out of the woodwork and out from behind their stained glass windows and pop up tents at pride celebrations and hand out literature telling folks that um, they are loved by God and that they are worthy and they are valued. And we are going to see churches that um may or may not have the capacity to be that or do that in real life um, every day of the year, kind of take a stand or kind of feel as if they need to make their mark during, um, during Pride celebrations. And so I'm curious, Sarah, from your vantage point, um, how we as faith leaders and as members of spiritual communities are wholly and fully authentic in that engagement in ways that um, are not performative, um, are not um, laden or um, underwritten with a tone of, um, of arrogance, um, uh, for our uh, spiritual enlightenment in the face of others who have not. Um, how are we to be um, in those moments and in those spaces? How, how are those that are listening to us who um, know that their church or their spiritual community is going to participate in their local pride festivals? Um, how are they, how are they, um, uh, best to engage? Where where do they find their center in the work, in real and um, and life giving ways? Do you mean specifically like clergy people, or also like congregants? 
Yeah, I think I think both. Um, I think that, you know, oftentimes, and this is this is very much a, a story that I tell myself. And so it may not be a story that that you see in your part of the world, but um, oftentimes at the Pride Festivals that I attend, um, the churches are there um, led by a group of laity or a group of congregants that have a specific um, desire to be there and to name their their um, their love for the community. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And sometimes the pastor is in the tent. Sometimes the pastor is not. Mm-hmm. And so I think that I think that we see we see both of those things happen mm-hmm. in in public spaces. Um, whether it's a capacity issue, uh, a, a guts issue, mm-hmm. uh, on, on the on the part of the pastor or not, but I think I think I worry um, about who we say we are. Um, those of us that are um, cis, identify as straight, um, are you know in full um, and committed. Um, uh, allyship and accompliceship with the queer community, um, and yet still also feel and look very performative when we pop up in places like mm-hmm. Pride. Yeah, and the same, you know, like related to um, like white allies, like celebrating Juneteenth and like those kind of things. It's like how how to do that with. Um, while staying connected and in relationship with queer people, you know, because, or with, with, with black people or people of color, BIPOC folks. Like, I think that um, it's such a great question, Anna, because I, um, you know, I think that there's genuine desire in many of the church communities that I'm a part of or aware of, there's genuine desire among a group of people to like, to, let people know, like, we're not the haters, you know? And that's, that's true. And I think there's a, there's a depth of theology that comes from that. Um, but, uh, there's also the tendency for spiritual communities to sort of like be like these corporations where it's like, we accept you. And we're like, like those of us who are queer religious folks, you know, in clergy or lay, we're like, hey, wait, you guys need to evolve. Like, like we don't just want to be like queer and look like heteronormative couples. Like some of us are poly, some of us are kinky, like we want to be sex positive. What are you learning? Like, can you get on board with sex positivity? Because that isn't related to like what the genitalia is of the people that you sleep with. It's related to like, come out of purity culture and um, let's like embrace that there's a multiplicity of like consensual practicing sex that's good and um, for all of us. Like I would love to have that conversation in the church, you know? So I, and I feel like it can't just be on queer people, LGBTIQ people to lead that or even related to gender expression, you know, for me, it's like, I've learned so much um, uh, about the fluidity of my own gender from the journey and journeying with and accompanying with 
my trans siblings. So, um, like, can can people, allies, name, like, how they've been transformed? That's, for me, like, where the rubber meets the road. Like, how are you transformed? That's where the performativity like gets disrupted for me like how are you changed by this work um and if you're not like find somebody to be in a relationship with you know and if you don't have actual people there's plenty of podcasts and um ways to listen deeply and like be be opened like find those places that we're um in um defensiveness and like let 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 ourselves be worked on in that way so yeah for me i think like if if pride and like coming out and being proud of each other and welcoming and creating a bigger sense of belonging can be about all of our liberation like all of our transformation then even in tiny little ways, um, then we're, we're on a path together. I love that. I love that. Thank you. I want to talk to you every day. Yeah, that's, let's do it. It's fair. It's fair. Well, Sarah, uh, what is the best way for our listeners to engage with you, to, um, tweet at you, to send you messages? What's, what's the best way for folks to be in touch with you? Yeah, I'm on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook with my full name, S-A-R-A-R-O-S-E-N-A-U. So you can find me there and um, happy to be in dialogue and share and learn from each other. So it's so wonderful to be here with you and be in conversation. I really appreciate the, the time. Thank you. It's good to be here with you. Yeah. Thanks so much, Sarah. Friends, we are grateful that you have been a part of this episode with us. Um, this month offers us um, a, a, a multitude of ways to engage in the work um, in both um, acts of resistance and um, acts of community. And if you know anything about um, Robin and I, um, resistance and community don't feel like they go together, but they would be two of the things that we would want carved on our headstones yes. um, when we die, if that was yes. the choice we had. So yes. um, we will be back again next week. Uh, don't forget to follow us at Activist Theology everywhere and all the places. Um, we'd love it if you would leave a review for us on the podcast on whatever platform you're listening. And until then, Dr. Robin, we will... Um, Get our hands dirty and more and beautiful work. Let's get free, y'all. Are you looking to connect the dots between what you think and how you live? Are you looking for a more robust way to be in solidarity with the movement? Are you looking to get your hands dirty with the work of social justice? Join Dr. Robin and Reverend Anna Galladay each week as they share, reflect, and analyze on pressing social concerns. Want to help support this podcast? Go to activisttheology.kindful.com and click on podcast. And remember, activist and theology share a T. The music you hear in this episode is Hands Dirty by our friends Delta Ray. Our sound editor and engineer is Dan Medley from 10 South Sounds. So up so early, they show me no-